Welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast, brought to you by the Rancho Cordova Film Office. On today's show, we're delighted to speak with Sacramento County Supervisor Pat Hume, who represents District 5 at the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors. The vast district totals 650 square miles and includes the cities of Elk Grove, Galt, Iselton, and Rancho Cordova, as well as rural farming areas and communities in the southern portion of Sacramento County and the Delta. Pat Hume has spent his life building on a legacy of service to the community. He grew up in Elk Grove and attended Kerr Middle School and Jesuit High School before receiving his BA from San Diego State University. After college, Pat moved back home to Sacramento County to help the family business following his grandfather's death in 1998. A native Californian, Pat was born on George Air Force Base in Adelanto, California. His family lived in Salisbury, England and Fall Walton Beach, Florida, until his father, Colonel Harlan B. Hume, died during active duty in September of 1977. After the Colonel's death, Pat's family returned to Elk Grove where his mother's side of the family has lived since 1946. Pat learned about service from an early age. On today's show, Supervisor Hume and I had a wide-ranging discussion about all things Sacramento County. We talked about the many problems facing the county and his plan to represent the unique interests facing District 5 and to ensure that its residents receive the best level of service possible from Sacramento County. My name is Charles Lego, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Rancho Cordova podcast. Now, let's get started. So first question, and for anyone who's listening who may not be sure what a county supervisor does, what are the responsibilities in the scheme of California government? What is a county supervisor? What do they do? Sure, it's a great question, and it's a, it's a little surprising how many people are unfamiliar with that layer of government. Uh, so essentially, in uh, the unincorporated areas uh, of the county, uh, the county acts as the municipal government. So they do all the things a city would do, uh, provide law enforcement, fix the roads, uh, provide the utilities, including trash pickup, um, as well as the zoning and planning and development and all of those. And then uh, throughout countywide, counties uh, across the state operate as the local government uh, arm uh, of the state for providing social services. So the entire support network around uh, seniors and, and children and uh, mental health uh, and that social network um, all fall uh, is administered by the county. So for any city that's not in an unincorporated area, those services still fall under the county supervisor's role. That's right. That's yeah. right. Whether it's in a city or in an unincorporated, uh, all of the, the mental health and, and uh, right. social network services okay. are And then the sheriff's county. department, obviously. And then the sheriff's department, yeah. yes. We had Jim Cooper here. Oh, um, good. Yeah, he, good friend yeah, of mine. You must know him well, right? I do, yeah. We served together. Served together, yeah. Yeah. So before we get into all things Sacramento County and politics, on the show, we always get to know our guests. Okay. So why don't we start at the very beginning? Where were you born? Tell us about your parents and school and everything. Sure. Uh, I was born on George Air Force Base uh, down outside of Victorville, California. 
Uh, my father was a fighter pilot. Uh, he, and then uh, when I was six months old, we moved to Salisbury, England. Oh. Uh, he was stationed over there with the RAF. Okay. I lived there until I was two years old and flew back to the States on my second birthday. Uh, and he was the vice wing commander of the first special operations wing at Her Hurlburt Field in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, up until the time of his passing in 1977. Uh, at which time we moved back to where my mom's family uh, had resided, and that's in Elk Grove. So I grew up in Elk Grove, attended Jesuit High School here in Sacramento, went down to school at San Diego State, and then moved home uh, in 1999 to help run our family business, which was in uh, semi-custom residential construction and uh, commercial uh, leasing. Okay. So at school, were you a good student? Uh, I, was a, I was a fair student. Yeah. Uh, I was a good student in high school, and then uh, it took me a while to, to get through college. Uh, and then I went back and, and got my master's degree, uh, actually just before becoming a supervisor. From Sac Oh, just recently then? Yeah. Yeah? So when you went to Sac State, what was your plan? What so I didn't go to Sac State. I went to San Diego State. Oh, San Diego State. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. That, that's okay. Um, I, I actually started out as a theater major. You did? Uh, yeah, I did. And um, once I got through all of the acting, directing, and screenwriting classes and started to get into costume design and wow. dramaturgy and some of those things, I decided that wasn't really the path I wanted to take. And so I pulled out the, the catalog and searched through different majors and ended up uh, getting an interdisciplinary uh, studies major uh, in English film and theater uh, geared towards screenwriting. So what was the interest in theater back then? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it started uh, kind of an early age. I've always been something of a ham and, and enjoy uh, playing different roles and, and getting into uh, sort of, uh, you know, the backstory of, of what motivates people to do things. And I think it served me well in my adult life uh, as far as uh, being empathetic and being able to, to walk in someone else's shoes, yeah. uh, you know, understand how or they're Or being thinking. a politician, acting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Did you act? Uh, I did act, yeah. yeah on yeah. plays? Uh, mostly live theater, yeah. 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 Wow, we have a theater here. You should come and do a show. Uh, well, uh, when uh -huh. I find some time, I might. Right. <laughs> so how did you eventually get into politics? It was a strange road, and it was never something that I uh, set about as a, a career path. Um, but when Elk Grove was incorporated, uh, a family friend was one of the uh, first uh, people elected to the city council and she knew I had a background in land use and so she tapped me to be her planning commissioner. Uh, that was in 2000 and then um, as things went along, um, you know, sort of the attitude that was coming out of City Hall didn't comport with, with the Elk Grove that I had grown up in and so I decided it was kind of a put up or shut up situation. Um, so I ran for city council in 2006 and defeated the then sitting uh, mayor um, and uh, and did 16 years on the city yeah. council. And when Don Natoli announced his retirement, that was the only other uh, political role that I'd envisioned. And, and so I, I went after it and, right. and been on the job for about seven so months now. You were very well established in Elk Grove. I mean, as you say, you served 15, 15 years, right? 16, 16 as a council years. person, yeah. District yeah. 2. Yeah. And you were the longest serving city council person since the formation of the city, right? That's correct so yeah. far. So what motivated you to run for county supervisor? Um, you know, it was actually, I, I had a lot of people that were asking me to do it. I was ready to get out of politics. Um, that's why I went back and pursued my master's uh, in organizational leadership. I was going to do um, motivational speaking and life coaching. Uh, and uh, the field that had developed early on um, didn't seem to represent sort of the, the uh, established uh, 
history of District 5. And so, uh, like I say, I had a lot of people asking me to do it. So it was the only other uh, job uh, in politics. I'm a, I'm a local government kind of guy. And so I respected Don Natoli and the work he had done and his predecessor, Toby Johnson, and right. thought I might just take the uh, baton and continue it on. So 15 years you were established. Did you have to run in those 15 years? Obviously. Oh, sure. I was yeah. uh, reelected three times. Yeah. Yep. But then you, your, uh, your run for supervisor was a hard-fought race, as I've read, against Jacqueline Moreno. But you were endorsed by Don Natoli. I was. And you won by 341 votes. Yes. Which shows that every single vote definitely uh, counts. It, it absolutely does. And that's out of, uh, I think, 98-some-odd thousand, yeah, thousand cast. People, yeah. yeah. So how, why was it so tight? And why was it such a close race? Now, with hindsight, you're in now, so you can... Sure. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, anytime you're in a, a political campaign, a lot of it has to do with party registration and the demographics of the district. And so, um, you know, those numbers favored uh, my opponent. Um, and so even though I, I had more experience and, and more uh, roots in the community, um, just making up sort of that uh, ideology of, of, you know, voting, uh, um, you know, with your party sort of a, a thing. Um, and so it was it was very hard fought and she ran a great race and, yeah. and it was down to the wire and it took almost a month to count all the votes. Yeah, yeah I remember. So I always wonder, do you uh, do you stay in touch? Are you friends with your opponents? Uh, we or? were uh, we were before the the race. Um, we have not spoken since. No. Um, it was a hard fought campaign, yeah, as, yeah. as you said, and so, so you there say was, things about each other. Yeah, or... there were some disparaging things. Yeah. Uh, you know, trying to cast me as someone I'm not, and uh, so you know that stings a little bit. Right. But I certainly don't hold any animosity towards right, her. Right. Yeah, I always wonder if when you have these hard campaigns. Whether you stay, whether when it's all over, you say, oh, well, it was just a, a campaign. Yeah, I think it depends on the person and it depends on the circumstances. Uh, you know, there's a planning commissioner in Elk Grove who uh, ran against me for my first reelection back in 2010. Uh, and he and I are close friends to this day. Yeah. And so there's no, no yeah. bad blood there at all. So as we said, you took Supervisor Don Natoli's seat and he served in that position since 1994 prior to his retirement in 23, which is 29 years. Yes. That's a long time. Yes. So those are tough shoes to fill, I would imagine. So what, when you came in, what policies were top of your agenda once you were sworn in? Well, I mean, you have uh, kind of the top three that are perennial issues uh, with the constituency, uh, and that is uh, law enforcement, uh, roads, and, and then now recently it's been uh, homelessness. And so those are kind of the, the issues that, uh, you know, don't have easy solutions that are going to be ongoing uh, concerns. Um, and, uh, you know, Don had been in the role for 28 years prior to me, and he was uh, his predecessor's chief of staff uh, wow. before that. So he had 44 years wow. of combined uh, service. And so, he, and he just had a knack of being everywhere at every right. event. Right. And so those are big shoes to fill, and I've right. been trying to, to keep that visibility. Um, and then I have, you know, obviously certain things that uh, in the different communities that vary uh, by community right. uh, that I'm trying to work on. So what's a day in the life of a county supervisor? What's a typical day? What what do you do? Oh, my gosh. So, uh, you know, I'm in the office uh, usually um, eight to 10 hours uh, every day, um, generally taking uh, meetings, um, responding to constituents' uh, concerns, um, and then obviously different boards and commissions. I think I sit on about 20 different boards uh, as a part of this role, in addition to obviously the, the meetings that you attend as a county supervisor. 
Um, and then, you know, obviously you have your after hours functions and, and uh, uh, other uh, community meetings that you attend and, and go to. And again, try and make sure that you're uh, getting out and, and, and uh, uh, visiting with the people that you're representing. I asked Jim Cooper, what's a typical um, day in the life of a sheriff? And he answered with one word, meetings. Yeah. That's it. He just said meetings. Yeah. That's... Well, and so the first seven months, that's certainly been true. I mean, it, basically my calendar would be blocked out. As soon as I was done with one, I went to the next. And, and you could be talking about 10 different things, uh, you know, in 10 different meetings uh, and really have to kind of receive and file and set it aside and circle back and think about it later. So let's give um, the, our listeners here an overview of your, of your current priorities and initiatives as the county supervisor for District 5, right? Correct. So what specific projects are you focusing on? So the first thing you have to realize is just how large District 5 is. So it goes from the western portion of Rancho Cordova at the north all the way down through the unincorporated county through Wilton, Herald, picks up the cities of Elk Grove and Galt, uh, and then all the way down to the very tip of the Delta. So it's an hour and 45 minutes by car from the northern border wow. to the southern border. And that's so you have Elk Grove, Five. Galt, and Rancho. And, uh, and, and the unincorporated. Yeah, and then the yeah. unincorporated, yeah. yeah. Um, and so as I mentioned, you know, obviously the priorities vary from community to community. And so you have, um, as I said, the perennial issues of road law, roads, law enforcement, homelessness. Then uh, in addition to that, I'm working on trying to establish a better broadband in our rural communities so that people have more access uh, uh, to the Internet and, and, and things. Um, in addition to that, I've been championing uh, a flood response and a multi-benefit project, uh, you know, because my first day in office, the yeah. Kasumnas was overflowing its banks and We're flooding talk about that, southern yeah. uh, Sacramento County. So that's been a big thing. Um, another issue that I was brought to my attention, I've been working steadfastly on, is um, our uh, patient offload times for our emergency rooms. Um, which I can delve into that more. It's a, it's a bit of a complicated, yeah. wonky issue, but it's it's an important one, and it's it's one that uh, I, I've been able to uh, you know kind of bring to the forefront a little bit. Um, and you know, then other than that, like I said, just trying to get more money, prioritize spending on right. roads, and and make sure that the sheriffs and the DA is right. uh, supported in their efforts. Let's talk about the patient. That, that's okay. interesting. I never. So I'll tell you a story. So one of the guys here one day started feeling unwell, mm -hmm. Jose. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he won't mind me telling. And as the day went on, by 4 o'clock, he said, oh, I've, I've got to go to the ER. So I took him to Mercy. Okay. And we arrived at 4 p.m., 4.30. Okay. And I stayed with him the whole time, and we left at almost 3 a.m. Oh, my gosh. And in that time, I think we sat in the waiting room probably the whole time except for maybe an hour. Yeah. So is that what you mean about that's the... a th that's that's it? Except now, imagine instead of you being the person waiting with Jose, it was the paramedic that brought him there by, oh. by ambulance. Oh, and so uh, it's called uh, ambulance patient offload time, APOT or wall time, is what they referred to from the first responders. And what it says essentially is that the paramedic cannot. Uh, you know, quote unquote, abandon that patient until the hospital takes responsibility. Oh, okay. For it. That happens in England, actually. They're going through a big problem with that in England. Okay. So that happens here. That happens here. And, and so what's happening is you'll have, you know, three or four ambulances that are tied up at the same emergency room with the paramedics waiting for the patient because the hospital is understaffed or they're overwhelmed or, or you know, the ER is being uh, misused for, um, you know, maladies that aren't necessarily right. life threatening. 
uh, and so that those paramedics, the you know those uh, taxpayer-funded um, resources are are waiting in the hospital room until the okay. The, so a paramedic comes and gets me, takes me to the hospital, and they have to wait with you until you get seen. That's correct. And so by by state law, it's, it's targeted to be at about a twenty to thirty minute process. But as you just mentioned, it can be up to three or four hours. So how are you fixing that? Well, that's a it's so far uh, I have. Um, Champion getting uh, a staff member at the county. So the county has a local emergency services agency. It's called LEMSA, and that oversees all of this. So getting a staff member that's going to be devoted to working on this issue. Uh, I want to convene a meeting of the first responders uh, and the hospital council that represents all the different hospitals that have ERs to try and figure out, um, you know, how we model a better system. And so there's many different uh, options to do that. Um, there's telehealth, where essentially they would show up with, uh, you know, uh, just like we've done with Zoom meetings and such, so that you would speak to a doctor remotely via right. via right. Um, uh, teleconference. Um, there's community paramedicine, where they are actually you train up the first responders to a higher level of diagnosis that they can actually say, look, you're not life threatening. Um, and then there's also triage to alternate destination that says. You're suffering something that, that isn't life-threatening. We don't need to take you to an ER. Would you be willing to go to an urgent care, for example? Okay. And so all you're trying to do is lessen the burden right. that our emergency rooms right. are experiencing. So Because what's sitting there, I hadn't sat in, in an ER for a very, very long time. But sitting there, I'm, you know, you, you're bored, you're looking. And I noticed that most of the stuff that was coming in was homeless people. Mm -hmm. It was mental mm -hmm. illness issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was very little. I well, not very little, but it was certainly half and half. Yeah, and I could tell the hospital staff were very frustrated with some of these people. Well, and that's really the root of the issue, isn't yeah. it? Is that the, the emergency room is being misused? It's being used as a primary care, right. or it's being used for um, uh, situations that aren't uh, necessarily life-threatening, as you mentioned, whether right. it's an overdose situation or right. a homeless person requiring right. medical treatment yeah. or a mental health breakdown. Right. And and those are options where we can, um, you know, that triage to alternate destination where we take them to a, a center that's more equipped for that particular need. And so the county is standing up... Um, I forget the the what the acronym stands for, but they're called CORE, C-O-R-E, yeah. uh -huh. Community Outreach Resource uh, something. Um, and it's in partnership with WellSpace Health. And so it's an opportunity to divert some of that use away from the ER. So then that provides more throughput and capacity right. for the ER to be used as it was intended. Okay. So now into the subject of homelessness. A couple of months mm. ago, we had um, Jim Cooper, Sacramento Sheriff, yeah. Jim Cooper on this show. And I'm sure you know him very well because you both served on the city council in Elk Grove, right? Correct, yeah. So he was there a long time. Yes, he was. And he was. Uh, the, he's the second longest serving. Yeah. Oh, he was council. the second yeah. longest? Yeah. And he was mayor. Were you mayor? I was. Yeah. Yeah, 2008, 2009. He was a mayor a couple of times, I he think. He was. Yeah, he was the first mayor. Yeah. So I asked Sheriff Cooper what his number one priority and passion is. And he gave me two. Okay. Guns and homelessness. And homelessness, he told me, was his main thing. Mm -hmm. The plight of the unhoused mm -hmm. were a priority for him. I read the other day, which I think it's true, that 30% of the homeless population in the U.S. live in California, and that 41% of them are 50 years old and above. Mm. And then homelessness has been a very significant issue here in Sacramento County. Just drive around Sacramento, Correct. And, and you'll see it. So what steps have been taken to address homelessness and what measures do you believe are necessary 
to make a meaning a meaningful impact for homelessness in this county and is it something that you are passionate in solving it's absolutely something I'm passionate about. It's it's definitely in the top three of my priorities, if not the top priority. Because it seems to be getting worse, right? It, it, it does, yeah. and it's and it seems to be kind of uh, getting worse exponentially. Yeah, uh, started off a slower pace, and right. it's really ramped up. And it's no longer people that you would quote unquote say are on drugs or are mentally ill. Now it's just regular people that are finding themselves unhoused because of housing problems certainly certainly housing is a component of it uh, there's a housing shortage in California it's very unaffordable um, and unfortunately there is a vicious cycle uh, that that takes place where someone who finds themselves homeless then maybe uh, finds other coping mechanisms that then lead them into to where now they are drug addicted right. or having mental right. health issues and so it, it becomes very complex very quickly uh, but the first thing that I think needs to happen is we need to look at some of the legislative hurdles um, uh, there are a series of um, acts that were enacted back in the late 60s, early 70s called the Lanterman Acts, uh, the most uh, prominent of which was the Lan uh, Lanterman Petrus Short Act, which uh, dealt with uh, basically removed the opportunity to involuntarily commit someone. Uh, and it's also where the 5150 hold came from. And so essentially one of the problems that we have when we're uh, contacting the unhoused is if they refuse services, that's kind of the end of the conversation because you cannot force them to accept mental health treatment. You cannot force them to go into to detox. You cannot get, you cannot compel them to do something that they don't willingly want to do. Well, if you are having a psychotic break or if you are uh, extremely addicted to, to substances, you're maybe not in your clear mind to, to make that decision. So uh, that's one thing that I think Sheriff Cooper has um, really kind of grabbed the bull by the horns and he said, look, uh, we don't want to uh, penalize people and make life more difficult for them. And certainly being homeless is not criminal in and of itself. But to the extent there are criminal acts happening, let's start documenting that so that then we can use that as the stick, right? So you have a carrot and a stick. Yeah. Use that as the stick to to get somebody to accept the, the help that we're offering. So at county supervisor level, do you is, is it a common discussion? Do you all talk about it? Is it a... Oh my gosh, Something, it's yeah. it's it's what we first thing when we get to the office and and maybe the last right. thing before we go home. Yeah. And a simplistic question, but do assembly members, supervisors, state senators, is it like a discussion that you all have? It, it ought because, to be. Because I mean it's got to be bigger than it is. It, it 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 ought to be. And that's what I'm saying is that there are several hurdles, some of which are legislative, some of which are um, law enforcement related, and some of which are uh, you know how we're using our resources and how we're uh, tracking because that's the big issue is that we're not necessarily monitoring the data. And, and, and you know, we should ought to have metrics that are quantifiable, that are measurable, that are actionable, so we can chart whether or not we're being successful in the efforts that we're putting forth. But, but how can it be fixed? Let's say we got all the homeless people together in Sacramento and we put them all somewhere. It's going to be a few thousand people, I would imagine. It's about 9,000 people, yeah. Right. Sorry, so they're all together. You're yeah. gonna fix it. Nine thousand people. What, yeah. what can be? What can possibly be done with these people? Well, that's the first thing that you have to understand is there is no one size fits all, right? The journey to homelessness varies by individual, and so the journey out of homelessness is also going to vary. So, whether or not it's mental health treatment, whether or not it's housing resources, whether or not it's it's uh, uh, substance abuse treatment, 
Um, you know, there are many different reasons why people find themselves homeless, homeless. So, you know, obviously building more housing at every income level so that the compaction that's happening that makes, you know, uh, rental properties more expensive, for example, then they tie up something that could be more affordable for somebody else right. who's currently tying up a low uh, income apartment, et cetera, all the way down to shelter space. And so I think the big thing is that that we have to um, somehow bridge the gap to uh, get participation into the social network services that are being offered uh, build the capacity there so that we can get people uh, better treatment so that they can really change the trajectory of their life. Uh, because, you know, you have what we see out on the streets are the chronic homeless. Right. But you have people who are living in their cars, who are couch yeah. surfing, right. who are technically right. homeless, yep. Yep. who could be, you know, quote unquote, right. normalized back into regular housing uh, fairly easily. So it, there's a multitude of different things that need to be done. And, and um, they, you know, I've always said, we ought to start with the lower hanging fruit first, preventing those from becoming homeless and, and getting those that are recently homeless back into housing, back into a, a workforce situation. Uh, and, the, and the ones who, you know, are, are half naked in the street screaming into the wind, they're a heavier lift and we right. can come back to them uh, and by the way, it's not only Jim Cooper. We had Kathy Lester, the police mm, chief of, mm -hmm. of uh, Sacramento. And again, just as frustrated and as, as Jim Cooper. No answers. I well, mean, she just... might even be more frustrated because Cooper at least has uh, the board of supervisors who are supportive of his efforts. Um, whereas Kathy Lester, I think, has a different political environment within the city of Sacramento. Um, and, and you see that manifesting itself into the, the tents uh, proliferating, um, proliferating on the um, sidewalks. And so I think that we're going to see um, everything come to a head a little bit because uh, you may be aware uh, the city was sued because uh, ADA, there were people who said, look, I, you know, I'm blind or I'm in a wheelchair and I can't go down the sidewalk because I'm being blocked by uh, either tents or by... Uh, oh, yeah. they were? Yes, yeah. And so That's it, actually a very logical... Yeah? Well, it is. I mean, yeah, I've when, had you, to, when I walk my dog, I have to go around... Right. And so now imagine you're yeah. blind and yeah, you're being yeah, forced yeah. to walk or out into in traffic or yeah. you're in a wheelchair and yeah. you can't get off and on the curb. Okay. Yeah. So it's a serious situation. And, you know, the, what it comes down to is what we tolerate, we can expect. And so, um, you know, my um, kind of premise is that there there shouldn't be two sets of standards that, that one, you know, uh, folks who get up every day and uh, are, are housed and go to work and try and maintain their lives are expected to comport themselves uh, to one standard, and, and we accept much less uh, out of those that are unhoused. And so I don't think that there's anything about being homeless that ought to allow you to be a scofflaw. Right. I agree with you. So in the same vein as the plight of the unhoused, affordable housing remains a challenge. What strategies are being implemented or being considered to increase the availability of affordable housing? Well, in Sacramento. Uh, yeah. So I can tell you in Elk Grove, uh, where I served previously, we had a very robust affordable housing fee that uh, we actually put more affordable housing units in the ground as an agency than any other jurisdiction. Did you say fee? Fee. Yeah. So every time a, a house or, or market rate apartment is built, they pay a fee that goes oh, into I a see. fund yeah, yeah, yeah. that is then used as a loan right. uh, in order to, to, to uh, bridge the gap for financing for affordable housing. And, and then that clouds the title so that those units have to remain uh, targeted at, at low income, very low income, moderate income, et cetera. 
Um, so building more housing, again, as I said, that's the number one priority is we just, we have a supply problem. And a lot of that has to do with state regulations relative to uh, the Environmental Quality Act and some of the other things that, uh, you know, within zoning and, and, you know, that make it more difficult. Um, but then, you know, in addition to that, uh, we are converting motels into um, permanent supportive housing so that we can get people into stable uh, housing project uh, home key is or, or room key as one of those. Uh, and so that's that's the first hurdle. Then the second hurdle is now how do we change what's happening between their ears? And so whether that's, um, you know, employment training, whether that's mental health counseling, whether that's uh, addiction treatment, et cetera, we have to somehow figure out how we can move the needle to get people to accept the services that are really going to, as I said, change the trajectory of their life. Uh, because if all we do is put a roof over their head, it's likely they're just going to spiral right back into the situation from whence they came. But affordable housing is not just for homeless people, right? It's for people that um, maybe they're in a low income. Absolutely. They're, low income absolutely. They're, not, they're getting minimum wage. I mean, I don't really know how you afford. If you work at Target, for instance, yeah. I'm not really sure how you afford an apartment. That's right. I mean, That's I right. Don't. So, how, what is affordable housing? What, in a nutshell, what does that mean? Affordable housing. Well, you have you have here. two two versions, right? You have capital A affordable housing, and you have lowercase a affordable housing. And so, lowercase a affordable housing is really attainable housing or workforce housing, and that's just housing that is. Um, you know, less expensive to get into, whether it's rental or purchase, you know, the, right now we just, it's amazing the rents that are being commanded, how much a house is. I mean, you look at even some of the most uh, marginalized neighborhoods and, and they're unaffordable for the people who've traditionally yeah, lived there. Yeah. Uh, and then you have capital A affordable housing, wherein, as I said, it's typically some sort of subsidized development so that it was uh, used public funds in order to bring it to fruition. And those units are targeted so that a certain percentage are available to moderate income, which is like 60% of the average median income, um, low income, which is 40% of the average median income, and very low income, which is 30% of the average median income. And so it, they are kept, it's, it's kind of rent control, if you will, that they're kept at those levels in order to try and make them more attainable. But the, the compaction that's happening, I mean, the waiting list for people to get into those units is more than the units that are available. Mental health. Mental health services play a crucial role in supporting the well-being of people and residents. So as an elected official, how do you believe mental health services could be improved in the county? And then are there any efforts being made to ensure accessible and comprehensible health care for people? Um, so that's that's kind of a difficult two-part question to answer succinctly, but yes, uh, the county is, is, as I said, we are establishing uh, community resource centers that, that make those services available. Um, we, I know that uh, Sacramento County Office of Education has a program where they're trying to put a mental health counselor on every school site within uh, Sacramento County uh, because, you know, obviously a, a lot of mental health issues uh, reveal themselves or develop um, during those formative years. And so to the extent we can get somebody, uh, you know, uh, on a stabilized path earlier, um, maybe uh, reduces the impacts later in life. Um, but again, the, the big hurdle that I see out there is we have gone from an institution-based mental health care system, uh, sanitariums and the like, 
uh, to what's called community-based, where we try and keep people really in their homes or in the community uh, receiving treatment or medication and, and still trying to you know, function within uh, society. Um, that's difficult to manage, obviously, because it's, it's called scattered site, and so you have small groups scattered throughout the county, uh, but uh, we are definitely um, focused on, on standing up more of those resources where we can. Um, we have devoted, uh, and the human assistance department within the county of Sacramento is almost a $900 million uh, department. Wow. just that one department. So there's substantial money uh, being spent on trying to provide these services. But as I said, one of the hurdles is that under state law, you cannot compel somebody to seek help if they don't, they don't want it. And, and if they're not of right mind, then that conversation obviously wow. becomes much more difficult. Yeah, Cooper, his problem was they all end up in jail. Which if is if a terrible doubt, solution, right? Yeah, that, if that's, in doubt, put them in jail. Yeah, and, and that then doesn't the sheriff anyway. deputies are the ones that become the mental health counselors. And right. Um, so let's move on to transportation, which is another important topic. I think Absolutely. to you, if I read. Yep. Uh, and infrastructure, and these are important for economic growth and the quality of life. I mean, nobody wants to sit in traffic. I mean, I'm from LA, yeah. so you go from here to downtown could take you an hour and a half sure you know sitting on the 405 so what specific projects or initiatives are underway in sacramento county that will improve transportation and infrastructure if there are any which i think there are there are quite a few as yeah. a matter of fact and so i sit on the regional transit uh board of directors as well as the capital Cal southeast connector uh jpa board as well as the san joaquin uh, JPA board, which handles uh, heavy rail. And so we're doing a couple of things. We're extending uh, heavy rail passenger service um, from Stockton all the way up to Sacramento with uh, stations in uh, Elk Grove and uh, City College and Midtown and the uh, Valley Station. So that's a different... So heavy rail would be Amtrak? Correct. Yeah. Okay, Correct. good. Um, in addition to that, uh, on RT, we just received some funding for um, corridor enhancements on the Blue Line, which runs from Sacramento out to Folsom, mm -hmm. as well as uh, interchange enhancements for the, the, the freeway interchanges, uh, Hazel Avenue, Sunrise Avenue, et cetera. Um, and in addition, we're looking at the extension both out to the airport as well as down to Elk Grove of light rail. So expanding that network. And then, you know, I've been uh, fighting for the... Uh, Southeast Connector, which would provide more throughput and capacity, um, stretching from I-5 to 99 to Highway 50 to try and take some of the vehicle traffic off of the downtown core. Um, so, you know, it's it's many different modes of transportation. And then obviously, you know, building up your your active uh, transportation of, of bicycle paths and et cetera. Um, and so there's no one fix, but uh, it's a perennial issue and yeah. it requires a, a, a strong dedication. And the Stockton to Sacramento Amtrak, is that ongoing? I mean, is that Yeah, it's received close? funding. The stations yeah. are being designed. Um, and uh, that should That'll be good, right? Because people be good. from Stockton can now work here and vice versa. Well, and actually it goes even farther than that because Stockton is the intersection where then you can go down uh, to the East Bay or the South Bay. Uh, or all the way down oh, okay. to Fresno and beyond. Oh, okay. And so it really opens up the whole state. So on the subject of economic development, um, which is vital for creating jobs, 
and fostering you know a thriving community what steps do you and other and other county supervisors not just you take to attract new businesses and in that vein support existing businesses to promote growth well and you you hit on the key there which is there's different types of economic development you have attraction retention and growth and so bringing in new businesses supporting the businesses that are here and helping those businesses uh, expand and grow um, we work closely with uh, our um, uh, the uh, various uh, business entities, uh, the Metro Chamber, the Greater Sacramento Economic Council, uh, in order to see that our regulations are not onerous and so that we have an environment that is conducive uh, for businesses. Uh, in addition to that, you know, there are all the quality of life issues that you have affordable housing or attainable housing, as well as uh, good transportation networks. So, so all of those things. Um, Sacramento is uniquely positioned, I believe, um, given our proximity to the Bay Area and to um, uh, the Tahoe uh, and Reno markets that, uh, you know, I think we're prime. All we have to do is keep people from fleeing over the Sierra Nevadas. If we can, if we can focus on, on making uh, their quality of life good here where the, the numbers make sense and the environment uh, for doing businesses is good uh, and the quality of life for their employees is higher, then, then it's going to be a pretty competitive um, place to locate. So on the subject of the economy, um, you took office in 23, and in 2020, we suffered a pandemic, mm -hmm. so for three years. Mm -hmm. um, what is the economic state of the county today since the pandemic? Has it bounced back? And what is the outlook as you see it? post-pandemic. Post yeah. So the good news is, well, I don't know if it's good news because we, we uh, had a pretty loose economic uh, uh, policy um, from the federal level. Um, so there was a lot of relief money that came pouring down to local agencies. And so they was uh, able to backstop some of the bleeding uh, that was happening uh, due to, to the shutdown of business and, and, and everything else. Um, so we came through uh, fairly strong. Um, and, and in fact, this budget that we just passed uh, had a considerable amount of, of growth included in it, about $100 million uh, of growth. In other words, more positions, more programs. Um, we are projecting that that's probably going to slow. Uh, I don't know that we're headed towards a recession, depending on who you ask, but um, certainly the, the growth might slow down to where we will have to tighten our belt a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, we came through with solid reserves and we continue to commit to, to building those up um, so that we have that rainy day fund in case things do go south again. Um, but, uh, you know, it was extraordinary times uh, with that pandemic and, and hopefully we don't see something like that again. So you were in Elk Grove during the whole time? I was. City Council. Yeah. One thing that I, I, I listened to an interview with you and one thing that I think is important to you is the environment. Um, towards the end of your tenure on the city council in Elk Grove, suffered a serious flood in, right? Mm -hmm. Just as you were leaving or um, you spoke very passionately at the time of what needed to be done. So how do you envision Sacramento County's future in terms of environmental protection and what initiatives are being pursued to sort of promote and help climate change? Sure. So, um, you know, what we're seeing really is is that there are two seasons uh, 
showing their uh, showing themselves in Sacramento fire season and flood season. Yeah. And um, my first day of office was the day after the New Year's uh, flood, right. and the Kasumas uh, overran its banks. Uh, I think there's four people uh, lost their lives in the flooding that happened, as, as well as the devastation to our agricultural community and to many of our rural communities. So starting there, I uh, was able to get some money uh, in the uh, county budget in order to uh, get a staff and consultant to manage this multi-benefit project that we're looking at of starting with the watershed and how do we slow water from coming into the system? How do we uh, take it off in a controlled fashion? And then how do we uh, capitalize on it to get some groundwater recharge and maybe some habitat restoration? Um, we were also uh, pursuing federal funds uh, through our um, uh, Delta uh, Conservancy, uh, Delta Protection Commission in order to um, uh, uh, augment uh, that effort to, 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 to try and get that project to fruition. So that's one. Uh, the second one uh, relates back to the transportation network as we're trying to make sure that we have good evacuation routes, uh, both in case of fire and in flooding. Um, and then, you know, we are um, also uh, doing things to try and make our um, our cars and uh, you know roadways as well as our buildings uh, less impactful to the environment so that uh, hopefully we can slow the uh, the extreme um, uh, worsening uh, that's going on. Uh, so we have uh, several different things that we're So in your role, how closely do you work with, for instance, uh, like the mayor of, or the city council of Rancho Cordova, and then the governor's office, the, the state senate, like, do you all work together? I mean, do you meet with each other? How does it work? More so at the local levels, uh, there's a lot of coordination. Um, typically, what happens at the state level uh, happens there, and then we have to respond to okay. whatever new regulations are put into place. Um, oftentimes- So you're working closely with the city council of Rancho, Elk Grove, so on. Sure, because yeah. these, these concerns don't stop at jurisdictional lines, right? right? And so we try to have a coordinated response as best we can. So as an elected official, partnerships, I would imagine, are essential. Do you collaborate with other supervisors, assembly? This is sort of the question I just asked you. But do you collaborate to achieve common goals? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I think we have a very well-functioning board of supervisors. All five of us um, seem to be uh, focused on doing the work. So do you meet regularly? Uh, we meet every other week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like and a council then, meeting? Sure, yeah. exactly. It's just like a council yeah, meeting. Yeah. yeah, And then in addition to that, obviously, uh, you know, we'll have individual meetings with, with particular supervisors just to kind of bounce ideas off of one another. Um, and so those working relationships are strong. I have a great relationship with the City Council of Rancho Cordova, the City Council of Galt, the City Council of Elk Grove, as well as Eilton. So all of the, the cities within my district, I have strong working relationships with them. Um, and I have a good relationship with our local assembly members and our local state senators. And so I feel like, you know, any one of us can pick up the phone and call the other and, and, and really try and hash out, uh, you know, whatever is, is troubling us at the time. And then in the same vein, and as we get to the end here, um, what about community engagement? How, like, if, I'm, if I want to talk to you about an issue that I'm having in the county. Sure. What do I do? How does that work? Well, and that's really the most important, right? Because those are your constituents. You're, that's who you're representing. And so uh, I have staff that, that pretty much their first priority is responding to citizen concerns, uh, whether that's a phone call to our do office. Do people call or, you? you know, oh, yeah. Every yeah. day. Every yeah. day. Are they yeah. complaining about what? 
Well, it depends. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I've had uh, one guy during the, the rainy season once complaining because the pig feces from his neighbors was running over onto his property. Okay. So that's like an extreme right, example. Right. But uh, trees blocking roadways, um, if they're having concerns with uh, building permits or, 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 you know, we have uh, unauthorized uh, event centers happening out in the Wilton area, that's a big concern. Um, I was just down in the Delta with uh, Sheriff Cooper to talk about law enforcement. He's trying to increase law enforcement presence down there. So, you know, that's a big concern. So it varies from day to day and, and really uh, you have to be fairly nimble in how you respond to that. But like I said, I have staff that that's what they do. Um, and then uh, make sure that I'm aware of it. And I, I make sure that I monitor those emails as well. Uh, and then we are going to start uh, here next month having community uh, town halls in the different communities so that I basically bring the government out to the people and make myself accessible uh, so that they can speak to me directly. Um, so yeah, I, I don't take that uh, lightly. It's a very important aspect of local government. And it's one of the reasons really why I don't fancy myself going and wonking policy under a dome is because I like being accountable and I like being, you know, stopped in the grocery store and have someone bend right. my ear for a minute and, right. and just know that, that they are able to affect change within their government. And then um, finally, as we get to the end, how closely do you work with the sheriff? Because um, I would imagine that law, the crime mm -hmm. is a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, so how does that work? Like he must come to, he comes to you for funding, right? He does. So we fund the sheriff's department uh, kind of at the top line. And then how those funds get allocated is very much uh, with his uh, discretion. Um, as I said, I just attended a community meeting uh, with him recently. Uh, I came out to he had a get the scoop with Coop event in, in that's Rosemont. That's what he calls it? Yeah, that's what he calls get it. The scoop kind of a, yeah, it's yeah. a big uh, community event where he brings yeah. out the different departments of the sheriff's office. It's very family friendly. Um, and makes himself uh, accessible. And so I came out and, and uh, uh, participated in that. Um, he and I, you know, we have our cell phone numbers. And so we'll text one another if, if there's but an issue. But you know him very well. I know him very well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And so uh, very supportive of what he's doing. And what are some of the crime issues? What are they? Oh, well, my gosh. I mean, really, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, you have your sort of uh, you know, the big issues, domestic violence, uh, homicide, sexual assault, you know, uh, uh, robbery, uh, theft, those types of things. Um, but what we've seen is that with uh, some of the propositions that were passed, Prop 47 and Prop 57, for example, a lot of the retail uh, theft that's going on is really proving problematic. Uh, and and the, the scales of justice uh, seems to have tipped in favor of the criminals and not in favor of law enforcement. So he told me that, and I think Kathy Lester told me the same thing, that they don't really deal with anything under $950 now, right? $950 uh, is considered a misdemeanor and you're issued a, t a ticket. Uh, so you don't get appear. arrested. You don't get arrested. So if you walk into Home Depot and you steal $500 and yeah. they catch you and they call the police, will the police even come? Uh, well, let's back that up real quick because the state Senate just passed a bill that makes it illegal for an employee to interfere with a shoplifter. What? Yes. So you don't even get stopped. So you don't even get stopped. So you can walk in, pick something, and walk out. You can. Wow. I wouldn't advise it, 
Right. And I what certainly wouldn't do it. But, wow. and so what that's doing now is that's why you're going into stores and you're seeing all of their merchandise behind locked, locked yeah. cases. Which is very irritating. It's very irritating. It makes the shopping experience harder. And it's not good harder. for them either because you press the button, nobody comes. I've done it. And I think, oh, well, and I just leave. Right, right. Wow, that's, it's illegal for, for someone. Well, what about security if they have a security guard? Well, so Can then he that's- engage you? Uh, he, well, I imagine he could, but that, again, I think is a breakdown of society because now you are offloading onto the private sector what used to be a taxpayer-funded function of law enforcement. And, so and what is the reasoning behind that? I mean, I mean, you're you're in politics when they sit there in the state Senate and they say, you know what, we're going to make it illegal for someone to engage a shoplifter. What is the reasoning behind that? So what they what they cited as the reason for doing it is uh, making sure that the employees are safe. And so when you you know, we had situations, I think one was a Home Depot uh, person. Uh, One was shot and one was pushed down and, and cracked his head open and died. And so they're saying it's not worth it for the employee okay. to, to try to interfere. I mean, there's might... a case for that. Sure. And is that on party lines? Is it the Democrats that say more than the Republicans or is it just across the board? Um, I don't know the specific uh, party vote on that, but I would assume it's very much on party lines, as is everything in California, really, given that we are super majority of one party. So what is the answer to that? I mean, I mean, that's going to that's lawlessness, right? I mean, if it gets if people get wind that you could just walk in take something, nobody's going to stop you. You're not going to get prosecuted as long as you keep it under $1,000. Right. What's, there's no answer. Well, I, I think there's a couple of answers. One, we have to, again, what you tolerate, you can expect. And so we have to go back to uh, you know, a, a world of consequence and accountability. Uh, and I think that we really uh, need to roll back Prop 47 in particular, um, which is what established that $950 threshold and made certain uh, crimes considered nonviolent crimes, including sexual assault of someone's passed right. out, domestic violence. Uh, and so those are now misdemeanors rather than felonies. And, and so this I, is in California. This is in California. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's different. It is very yeah. different. And I, yeah. I think it's a problem. And I, I it's think it's a big problem. You know, unfortunately, I, mean, if I had a store, it would definitely be a problem. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you're seeing is, and this is maybe the worst. Uh, outcropping of it is is you're seeing um, many retailers just close up their stores in certain communities because they're not being given. Uh, but support. how are store owners told that it's illegal for them to engage a shoplifter? How does that get passed down? That's a good question, and I don't know that that's signed into law. I, I just know that it was passed out of the oh, Senate. I see. And so it's probably working its way through the assembly. Okay. So it might not be law yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it is, it will. It'll but it has be, passed. It, it came out of the Senate. Yeah, I believe it's in the assembly now. Um, and then it would go to the governor's desk to be signed and put into law. Uh, so you know, I, I think it just becomes kind of a known thing that uh, you know, as I said, you you don't have the support that you would expect um, from law enforcement. So now on a couple of personal things. So what personally drives you? What is a personal driver for you? Um, so it's, it's funny. When I went back to school to get my master's, I was tasked with writing a mission statement. And so I... About I, yourself. About myself. And so thinking about that and trying to hone it down into a one-sentence mission statement really uh, framed, you know, kind of my goal in this world. And so I said, I, I will use my God-given talents, skills, and experiences acquired along the way to inspire others to be better versions of themselves until I leave this world having given at least as much as I've received. Wow. 
You got a good mark for that? Uh, so far, I'm trying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and what mistakes have you made? Oh, geez. Um, that's a good question that I'm not prepared to answer right now. No, okay. <laughs> I'm sure there have been a few. Yeah. And do you think you're born a leader? Because you're a leader. You're a politician. You're, you're leading. Are you born a leader or do you think you have to learn to be a leader? I think you can do either. Uh, yeah. I think obviously certain uh, personality traits um, are definitely helpful. So being, you know, kind of outgoing and, and uh, an extrovert uh, help in that regard. But I absolutely think uh, anyone can be a leader. And the important uh, consideration there is that when you are leading, you're actually serving. And so you want the best for the people you're leading, um, not for yourself. Right. So Sacramento County Supervisor Pat Hume, thank you for visiting us here at the Rancho Cordova podcast. And we appreciate your time. But we always, if you've listened to the show, we end the show with a quick fire round of questions. Okay. So if you all indulge us, I'd love to to do that with you. Okay, great. So what is one word that others would use to describe you? Quick-witted. What is one word you would use to describe yourself? Uh, steadfast. And if you could be one person for a, a person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? And Ooh. people always say alive or living, and I say whatever. Uh, that's a good question. I could tell you who I wouldn't want to be probably more easily than who I would want to be, but I, I'd probably want to be um, maybe Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah? Yeah. Back in, in the, or Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Somebody Ernest that Hemingway just uh, kind of lived a larger. He traveled the world. Traveled the world, yeah. hunting, fishing. Killed himself, but. Well, yeah, yeah. maybe I'd stop before that, that day. Yeah. That wouldn't be the day. <laughs> right. What is your biggest pet peeve? Uh, rudeness. Rudeness. What is one app on your phone that you could not live without? Calendar. Calendar? <laughs> I see you have it right there. Is that a calendar there? This is my calendar yeah, for yeah. today, yep. You have, you walk around with a printed one. Yeah. And what's something about you that few people would know? Uh, the acting is uh, the acting history is is probably one of them. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Actually, it's, it's something that most people do kind of clock, so you, clock their you were doing theater. Did you say it at um, college? You yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you so were I, doing I, it on a high level there. I started in junior high school and did it all through high school. And um, you learned everything. You learned wardrobe, makeup, uh, design. Well, Lights. actually, the wardrobe, the makeup, and the design, when it got to those classes, that's when I switched over to a different major. But the acting and directing and writing, yeah, I've done all those. I've done a little bit of professional theater as well. Wow. And, yeah. Do you think you could direct a play now? Uh, I could. It would take me a, a minute yeah. to get back into it. But wow. uh, in addition, I do auctioneering. So well, that's, that's definitely something about you few people would know, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And is there a story from your childhood that shaped who you are today? Curious George. Curious George? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the little monkey or the right, gorilla. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And finally, what has been your greatest challenge? <sighs> that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, keeping my garage clean. <laughs> yeah. Since that's just what I worked on this weekend. Right. Well, we've been speaking with Sacramento County Supervisor for District 5, Pat Hume. Supervisor Hume, thank you. 
for being here and coming to the Rancho Cordova podcast. I know looking by your very thick calendar there, you've got a million more important things to do. And thank you for the work you do. With thank the you, Charles. Of the county. So there you have it, folks. You've been listening to the Rancho Cordova podcast. Please visit our website at ranchocordovapodcast.org where you can listen to past shows. And please send us any comments or so show suggestions you may have. My name is Charles Lego, and until next time.